Halito and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by natives for all. Here we're keeping our native ancestors' stories and history alive while also sharing with you our native culture, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And I hope you'll do me a favor. Feel free to like and share these episodes. I so appreciate it. Yakuki. Big news, y'all. One of my favorite Choctaw authors, Sarah Elizabeth Sawyer, has a writing course called Fiction Writing American Indians. Now, this course will show you how to discover the insight you need to write quality, authentic stories. You'll also learn practical approaches to researching Native cultures and get answers to hard questions. I'll be taking the same course, and I invite you to take it with me. Just go to AmericanIndians.FictionCourses.com. Dot com. But don't forget to use the code CHOCKTALK, that's C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K, when you go to checkout to get $30 off. Yes, let's do this. Listeners, today I am truly honored to introduce our distinguished guest, a scholar whose anthropological and historical research on the co-talkers and on Native Americans in the military is unrivaled, unearthing stories and narratives that have long remained hidden or misunderstood. Dr. William C. Meadows holds a BA from Indiana University with a double major in anthropology and history and MA and PhD degrees in cultural anthropology from the University of Oklahoma. He has performed fieldwork and published in the subfields of cultural anthropology, linguistic anthropology, and archaeology. He has conducted research with multiple Native American nations as well as in Japan and has carried out archaeological fieldwork in the Midwestern United States. Dr. Meadow has taught at Colorado State University, Indiana State University, and since 2003, Missouri State University. He is the author of six books and multiple published articles on Native American veterans, The Code Talkers, Native Sign Language, Plains Indian Maps, Ledger Art, Languages, and more. In 2004, he testified before a Congressional Senate hearing on the role of Native American Code Talkers in the United States Armed Forces and spoke at the Library of Congress on Native American Code Talkers in 2005. He has spoken at several openings of the Smithsonian Institution's traveling exhibit on Native American Code Talkers, Native Words, Native Warriors, and the National Museum of the American Indian, the National Museum of the Marine Corps, and other venues. His testimony and research were seminal in the passage of the 2008 Code Talkers Recognition Act Public Law 110-420, which brought federal recognition and congressional gold and silver medals for all Native American Code Talkers. Dr. Meadows is the head of the Missouri State Native American Studies Committee, and he proudly comes from a family of many U.S. veterans. Dr. Meadows, welcome to Native Chalk Talk. Thank you. Thank you for having me and pleasure to be here. Absolutely. I've been waiting for this day for quite a while. So today we'll walk through some remarkable information and research from your book, The First Code Talkers, Native American Communicators of World War I, 
y'all, by the end of this series, you'll want to buy this book because as interesting as the info is that we'll cover today, there's so much more that I couldn't even fit into these episodes. So many fascinating details. So go get the book. Interestingly enough, you and I have a similar admiration in common for a certain area in Oklahoma from Hog Creek to the Apache Y, which is outside of Anadarko. It's where I grew up. And for you, you've spent quite a bit of time out there yourself. Tell us about that. Uh, yeah, I, I started uh, graduate school in 1989 down at OU. And um, I remember um, uh, going uh through that area one time on the way to Carnegie when I first got down there and I looked up on a hill and I saw this house up on the hill and I just thought they must have a fantastic view from up on that point, you know, and I thought, you know, I bet they can see the Wichita's on a clear day. Well, about a year later, after I started working down there, that became my host family. No and, way. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but every time I drove by there, I just always thought that's such a, a unique place to have, um, a house up there so it's it's Mopo Hill you know and uh so that's uh, awesome yeah Vanessa Jennings who's from the Redstone community there she uh, uh eventually they become my host family and she took me as her son and uh so that's where uh the primary uh home that I've worked out of but I've, I've worked in many communities but that's always kind of been my primary base camp and of course now um, I can't go up that driveway without knowing all the history that goes with the place. Whereas the first right. time I went by it, it was just a pretty rural yeah. setting, you know. Um, so it's it's become a, a second home for the last 35 years. Yeah. That's so wonderful that Vanessa and her family just took you in and said, it's it's that Anadarko hospitality. I'm not gonna lie. Um, so the history of that that house on that hill, what is that history, if you're allowed to say? Oh, yeah. Um, the house there is not that old. Now, her grandfather, Stephen Mopope, and, and her grandma, Jeanette Berry, um, Stephen, of course, was one of the Kiowa Five, who are so well known as the as the Kiowa right. painter. Um, their house was was about halfway up the driveway, just a little bit lower on that, that piece of trust status land. Uh, you can still tell where the house was, where the old dance ground was. Um, and But later on, that 40 acres went to Steve at and Vanessa took the 40 acres above that. So they just built their, their newer house up uh, higher on the hill and everything, but it's all, it's all part of the uh, same parcel originally, you know. That's so interesting. And honestly, I didn't even know Stephen Mopope lived out there at one point. Oh yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah not, <laughs> not, not very far from the highway at all, you know, so, and, wow. uh, um, so, you know, I, I come to know a lot of those families that are around that area of Redstone, the Apache Y, and then, of course, my work took me all over Kiowa country, you know, and everything. But for sure. What are the odds? We were the we were that house. I don't know if you ever saw it. That was also one of the few hills where there was a house on a hill. Um, if you were heading west on Highway 9 and you look to the north, it's burned down since then. But it was many different colors. It was brown and then it was blue and then it was gray, but we loved it up there too. Cause you could watch the sun go down over the prairie and it was just beautiful. I would sit in my tree house and watch that. And then there was, um, a kind of a, a river lake type thing, uh, down below us, just South of us and Across lots of Canyon areas. Yeah. yeah. I know exactly used, where you're at. Yeah. Oh my gosh. We used to ride our horses under the road. Cause there was a a trail down there and we'd go through the underpass um 
and then go ride our horses into that canyon. But that's bizarre that you even know where that is. That's you're, you're just a you're just a little bit west of Ware's Chapel. Exactly. Yes. The, cemetery, the yep. cemetery. And then then there's houses on the north side of the road. Yeah. So another thing we have in common is a mutual friend, Choctaw author, Sarah Elizabeth Sawyer, who raved about your expertise and your books and had told me you were influential in the writing of her own books. So listeners, please go check out Sarah's books as well. Just Google her name and you'll find lots of good historical fiction books on the Choctaws, including some Code Talker stories, which are um, non-fictional. And so I'm going to do a little plug about her newest book about Otis Leader, who we'll talk about him in one of um, these episodes that we're doing. I'm a big fan of his just from... Um, reading Dr. Meadows book. And now with this book from Sarah, we can dive even a little bit deeper. So lots of good authors in our community, of course, today. Um, so Dr. Meadows, your book, The First Code Talkers is about World War One and the significant contributions of our Native American people, not just the contributions physically, but in a way one wouldn't expect. So tell us about our code talkers and what they did. Um, again, here's here's the book. Go get it, y'all. All right. So tell us, Dr. Meadows, um, about the code talkers and what they did. Well, <clears throat> Native American code talking and, and what we mean by that is the use of, of Native American soldiers to send military messages in their native languages. Um, mm -hmm. The reason being uh, the odds that the enemy, in this case, Germany in World War One, the odds that they would be familiar with these languages, be able to identify them or have the time or the means to break them um, was so, you know, small that it, it, it was, um, it was, it was considered it would be the perfect tool for the situation. And so the advantage to them in both world wars, but starting in world war one is they were able to send messages as quick as you and I speaking to each other on the phone or on zoom here and then you turn back around and change it from Choctaw back into English. And then the order is implemented. The information is furthered. Otherwise, you would have to code it with machinery uh, using codes and ciphers. And it's very tedious and slow and timely. So the advantage was the sheer speed of it. Uh, usually in a minute to a minute and a half, a message was completely done. Uh, translated, handed off, and went into effect. Uh, with the machine, it could be anywhere from an hour and a half to longer many times to get a detailed message through. Well, that time, um, that speed, and that advantage can completely determine the outcome of a, of a fight, of a segment of a battle, um, because communication is half of winning the battle. And everything. There's that famous saying that uh, communication is half the battle. If you have superior communications to the others and it's secure, uh, then you have a great advantage over the other side, regardless of numbers, sheer numbers. Absolutely. And, and like you said, that's so incredibly crucial at crucial times when there's a battle going on. And something that I didn't even know until reading your book was code talkers was a term that wasn't developed until close to the end of World War II. And interestingly enough, these code talkers, they weren't recruited to devise codes, but their coded communication sort of came about by absolute last minute need and a whim of an idea that just might work. Now, most people think that the first and only code talkers were Navajo, correct? 
yes, that's uh, still a very widely, um, you know, common belief among the public. Yeah. 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 And, and even then some folks think the Choctaw were the first code talkers, myself included, until yeah. I read your book. Yeah. Um, now's your chance to set me and others straight. Okay. Well, I was in the same pool with you for a long time, as far as I knew or had any evidence. The Choctaws, I believed, also were the first. Um, but as I began to do the research for this book, um, I come across um, uh, I come across information on the Eastern Band Cherokee, who were in the 30th, so from North Carolina, in the 30th Division, Old Hickory, uh, and they used they started using their language as a communication method about three weeks or so before the uh, Choctaws did. So one day I, I called Judy Allen and I was talking to Judy. I said, Judy, I got bad news. You're you're in second place now. The uh, Cherokees, uh, I found out, started using it earlier. He goes, well, that's okay. Well, I kept researching and then I found these two Ho-Chunk men uh, had done it, uh, best we can tell, probably towards the end of July um, at... Um, um, I can't think of the battle right now, but, but towards the end of July had used it. And so I called Judy back later. I said, well, you're in third place now. And she just laughed, you know, and everything. Um, Stop so, researching. <laughs> yeah. So we as far as we, as far as we know, the Ho-Chunk are the first group to use it. Just two of them. Uh, the Cherokees, we know that there are many Cherokees in that unit in the 30th. Now, when I ran the records and traced it, I was able to identify at least 15 or 16 uh, members by distinct Cherokee names, you know, um, okay. names like Sanook and Al and things like that. Now, the problem when you're dealing with the Southeastern groups, of course, a lot of them have boarding school or English names by that time. So you could have a John Thompson who could be Cherokee or he could be a totally white guy. So there's there's a lot more work to be done there. Uh, to figure out, we'd almost have to pull every single individual's records and check them for ethnicity. And sometimes that's recorded in World War One, and sometimes it's not. Uh, but we know we know they're definitely Cherokee in that unit. And then, of course, the uh, uh, Choctaw are going to use it uh, later in October of 1918. Now, I believe there's seven groups I've identified in World War One so far. We have dates of when the three of the groups started using the code but we do not know the dates when the others started so this chronology could easily be revised uh upon the discovery of a new file you know so the the work will never end you will just continue because how many people from the u.s were in the war so if you were to go through every single one of their profiles and try to find out oh, who they wow. were how many years would that take you a long time. Yeah. Yeah. A long time. yeah. <laughs> and we're actually going to talk more about the Eastern Band of Cherokee in a moment. And in this series, we'll discuss the Choctaw and the Navajo Code Talkers, as well as other tribes, 30 tribes, in fact, that you listeners may be surprised to learn were also Code Talkers. So those of us who research Native American history and ancestry know just how challenging finding those records can be. It's no different when it comes to Code Talkers, correct? Yes, it's it's very difficult and challenging, and because it was really an experiment, it was not an existing tactic, or there was no literature in the military, U.S. military about it. It's not well documented, and we'll get mm -hmm. into that. You know, 
But even then, some sources are incorrect or are lacking in citations or were even lost in a fire, right? Right, right. Yeah, there's uh, there's all the above. Uh, there was a fire at the National Military Records Archives in 1973, which lost a lot of records, particularly oh. probably hurt World War II guys more than anybody. Um mm-hmm. There are some uh, mistakes of particularly newspapers and newspaper mm. stories. A lot of times they're looking for something catchy. They sometimes will maybe artistic license is a nice way to say it a little bit, but they'll find something really catchy in a way to present it. And we'll get into the case with Oklahoma later where a single story was repeated for 70 some years before ever, anybody ever thought, does this actually add up? And they checked it out, you know, and found out that, yeah, part of it is very accurate and part of it's not, you know. And again, the mysteries continue. You've mentioned that this book is quite the mix of oral history, individual soldiers' accounts, newspapers, and so on. And what I love about this book, too, is you discovered information at the National Archives that no one else had found. So it must have been exciting to find those nuggets of info, right? Yeah, I can remember opening some boxes, uh, just ordering boxes to be brought up on a chance, you know, um, and some things where I immediately just, you know, grabbed the camera out of my bag and started clicking uh, because I had hit onto some really unique uh, documents, you know. And then another thing was, um, and Sarah and and Aaron Fair, you know, both helped with this, but uh, um, they found out that, um, Lieutenant um, and later Captain E.W. Horner had a daughter. And uh, a few years ago, she was still alive in Arkansas, and she really wasn't that far from me. And so um, I think it was, um, I can't remember, it might have been Sarah that called me and told me. And uh, she said she's got records of her dad about the Code Talkers. I drove down there, and just shortly before I arrived, Um, I looked at my watch and I realized it was a hundred years to the day that they first used the Choctaw code and almost almost to the hour because it was 430 when they started the uh, um, uh, I think it was 410 or 430 when they started the barrage Um, but I just found that to be spooky but fascinating goosebumps i mean total goosebumps it's that just shows that there was that was some kind of sign that this was supposed to happen the book was supposed to happen and you were supposed to meet with his daughter and that's only what's crazy about that is talking to her is only one generation away you know ew horner world war one and then um did did he pass down actual like conversations to her about the war and the code talkers or was it just all Um, written stuff um um it was interesting because um, he had a picture. She showed me, he still has all his stuff, a picture of him and the code talkers, the one that's real famous. And she said that was always on this wall in the house forever and ever and ever. And he had some cutouts of him in his uniform with a little wooden stand on it and things. And uh, I said, do you still have those? So she said, yeah, go in the other room and you'll see him bring them in here, you know. And then he had a trunk with some papers. And the papers were documents that he had written, which I have never found in any archive anywhere. And some of it was in 1941 and 42. Someone up in Washington, D.C., it's not real clear which office, was writing him and saying, can you tell us more exactly 
how you use the Choctaws in their language, you know. And so he went into greater detail uh, about the specifics of it more than any of the other documents do. Um, and, and then he also um, addressed some of the um, misconceptions or, or fallacies that had appeared between the end of World War I and 1942. And so he really, he answered some things that a lot of other standard sources allude to or hint but they're not really clear or definitive about either A ah. or B. No. But his papers totally, it totally strengthened the book. It really, um, it, would, it would have been a different book had I not got his papers. Right. Oh my so, goodness. That and that's the power of networking and um, like truly caring about our fellow authors. Um, the fact that she would call you up and say, hey, you've got to meet this lady. So yeah. yeah, what a fun find. I would just oh, yeah. beat my jaw would be dropping. <laughs> her, her son was there too, one of her sons. And uh, he he shared a room with his grandpa. So he said he got wounded, but he it was such a light thing. He never reported it or dealt with it. But he oh. said, I, I every time he took his shirt off, he had a tank top. You know, those old men were, you know, white right? tank. <laughs> and said, but, you know, he had the scar across um, the, you know, across the top of his shoulder where he the bullet it was enough that left a scar there, you know, and, um, and they said they had the coat that they didn't know where it was then, but the coat had a bullet hole in it and everything His uh, original world war one coat. And they, they had some really nice, you know, small anecdotes that went with it. And I remember she said, um, he never talked anything about the war except for the code talkers. He talked about them all the time to the family. Um, he was proud of them. He really enjoyed them. He went to visit one of them later on. And uh, his daughter remembered making the trip to Oklahoma to, I think, it was Solomon Lewis that they went to visit. And she described their house and everything, you know. Um, oh. But but that was something he was very proud of. He kept that picture of them always up in the house. And uh, he had a few news clippings on them that he had collected over the years. And it was clearly something he was very proud to be a part of. We don't talk about this in, in this episode necessarily, but later in the book, you talk about how drawing a clear distinctive line between the success of the Americans and the code talkers is kind of hard to do, but how, you know, how do you imagine it without them being in, in the war and, and knowing that the Germans were deciphering every code, they immediately, yeah. they would, in fact, we have some interesting stories to tell about that with, we're going to test this out. And then they'd find out, yep, the yeah. Germans definitely know what we're saying. Yeah. Well, so, I think I think the 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 real importance that and again you gotta if you if you step back from it uh just objectively, okay, this is a war with millions of people in it. Right. And there's a few code talkers in World War One that are used in some specific spots. And yes, they are giving great advantages in those spots and everything, but it was not on the scale you know, most divisions were not using these or it was not something um, like when the Choctaws sure. took um, um, Forest Firm. Uh, it's basically an action against 500 Germans, you know. So it okay. doesn't, it's not determining war. And I, and I don't mean this to dismiss anybody's contribution. It's not winning the war outright, but it is an important contribution. And to me, I think the bigger story or the big picture is that the guys in World War One 
experimented with the idea they set or formed like a template that template was expanded upon in world war ii where it had even greater success and impact and even then in world war ii it could have been expanded on much greater than it was you know but where yeah where it was used there's no question it was valuable and it Mm -hmm. it gave them great tactical advantages it saved some lives there's no question about it we have a couple uh very clear cases numerical cases to show that you know the choctaw as far as we know are the first one to develop coded words now if someone else did in world war one we just don't have documentation you know it's possible but we don't have any documentation and that um that list of coded words again that's the template that was expanded upon by the navajos in the marine corps and by four or five groups in the army during world war ii where they actually did sit down and consciously construct coded terms to insert into their native language and everything and that again i think is something that needs clarified but again the choctaws make a huge contribution here Thank you. Yes. Choctaw's made a big contribution. So even though we had to give up our first place in first place, as far as getting to the table with code talking, we can at least say that we were the first to make coded terms, right? Yeah. And you know, (laughs) the programs were all independent. There's no, there's no indication that somebody had this idea up high and then they just started using this in all units. Units are in, or in similar situations in different locations, they all realize the language is being compromised by wiretapping and things. And what? how can we send a message? And then those groups that have natives in there, they realize, hey, these guys are speaking something else and they're not going to know it. So I think these are cases of, of in, independent discovery, you know. That's so, me, so crazy to me. Yeah, yeah like the, that it was going on in even different battalions, right? Yeah, yeah. And so for me, it's not so much a question of who did it first or who did it last. It's more important, I think, to try to identify them all and get them right. recognized. You know. Yeah, and get them recognized. And and it is sad that with um so many people only hearing about the Navajo, which wonderful what the Navajo did in, in World War II, especially, but there are other tribes out there that contributed and just like any war hero, they, they deserve their accolades as well, for sure. So you set out to not only tell the history of the code talkers of world war one, but you also were determined to answer a few questions and mysteries. What were those mysterious factors? Um, <clears throat> okay. One would be exactly how many Choctaws did this. And so um, in the 80s, the Choctaw Nation started soliciting information through uh, Bishnik, you know, the newspaper Bishnik. Now it's Biskinik. Um, But um, and and a lot of people replied in the community and everything. There wasn't a whole lot of what we could call kind of um, documentary sources or military records or anything. And so the number, I think, eventually got up to about 19 and everything, 18 and 19. Well, when I finally got through uh, doing this, and particularly Captain Horner's, and Horner is the one that picked them and organized them and and did it, you know, Mm -hmm. he made it clear there were only eight that were actually used at Forest Firm. There were eight Choctaws used. And he said um, in one of the letters, 
he said, you know, I can I can name five of them. And it's the five that's in the picture with him. And in his letter, he says, you know, I remember those guys real clearly. I can still call their names. He said there were three others, but I just can't call their names, you know. And this is 20, you know, 23 years after 24 years after the war. Or so sure. now another document I found. OK, right after Forest Firm, they were relieved the 36th and um, the uh, 142nd Infantry. And this was all done in one infantry regiment. So the, as I say, it's it's just one segment that's using these uh, code talkers. Um, they were pulled back um, a few days march to a rest camp and given like a week recovery time. While they were there, orders came down to pick 18 men and three non-commissioned officers. And there is a um, Cheyenne officer who's a lieutenant, and I believe his name is uh, uh, Temple Black. Sometimes Templeton I, I see, sometimes Temple. But he's a Cheyenne from Oklahoma. And anyway, he was put in charge of training these men, of overseeing them. And so it, it says for a week, they sat down and they said, okay, we need to create a term for this. This is hard to get across in Choctaw. And that's where the actually code words were formed. Now they finished this looking at the timeline. They're doing this uh, approximately November 5th to 10th. Okay. And they finish it. And then of course the next day armistice. So they don't, they do not actually get to use the coded vocabulary in the, okay. that will be a, a spoiler for some people, but that's, that's the reality of the records, you know? And there was another mystery you were trying to uncover about, you know, were was code talking actually classified as secret after oh, yeah. the war? Yeah, yeah, that that is one of the hardest, um, you know, um, in just in culture in general, people will have certain popular beliefs and they've been there and they just can't let them go. You know, <laughs> well, you know, there's a there's a bit of logic to this, too, you know. So when you say code. Well, it has to be secret because right. if it's in secret, it's no good, right? Right. Well, that's if you know the language the code is based on, it would be no good. But if it's on a language that you don't know or have access to, it almost doesn't matter, you know. So yeah, yeah, uh, there is still this, and again, not to not to spoil anyone's belief or anything, but there is this very pervasive belief in in both native and non-native society today that all code talkers were, you know, sworn to secrecy. Um, there was this classification and everything of this nature. Well, there was absolutely none of this in World War I that we can find any evidence of. And the way, the reason I say this is, immediately after the war, you have officers all the way up to the two-star general commanding the 36th Division, Smith, to Colonel Blur, to... Um, uh, again, the signal tie, you have officers all over giving public talks. Colonel Blur, his letter to Eddie is actually published in Flagny, France. And so it's later republished over here in March. But if you look real close at the start of the article, it's it was published the month before in France while they were still over there. There was no effort. Wow. And then there's a there's just a a swarm of newspaper articles that follow in 1919 and they go on for decades specifically about the Choctaws, you know, 
I, I wonder at what point all of a sudden people started thinking it was a secret or that it was classified because that that immediately happened as soon as they got back or as soon as they were released they yeah. all start talking about the fact that they were code talking or, or the newspapers did a, at the very least just know everything you thought you knew about the classification of this program of code talking was not true it was not classified so there's so much more to come with that and on top of it we learn a little bit more about the actual military accomplishments of Joseph Oklahoma. We'll be back after this quick break. Are you in the medical field looking for your next opportunity? Listeners, I'm proud to introduce you to Native American veteran-owned staffing company, Worldwide Medical Staffing. Owner and CEO Jackson Weaver is a citizen of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma and is a service-connected disabled veteran where he and his team staff for commercial healthcare and government entities, such as the Department of Defense, Department of Energy, and DHS, and specialize in staffing Indian Health and VA hospitals nationwide. Isn't it nice to know that our veterans are being cared for by staff who have been handpicked by a veteran who's been in the staffing business for 17 years? Healthcare job seekers, check out these open jobs on www.medical.com. If you're seeking temporary, long-term, or permanent placement of physicians, advanced practice, registered nurses, and more, check out www.medical.com. And Diakoki to our medical professionals and to those who have served our country. Um, and and he was a Choctaw infantry man that was long reputed to be the most decorated Oklahoma soldier of World War One, And of course, he is to be heralded as, as a hero, of course, for his work in the war. But um, there were some, there was some misinformation, let's just say, that came out around the time of his coming back. So it seems like you accomplished these goals and then some of trying to get to the bottom of some of these mysteries. And again, we'll kind of weave those answers in and out here. But so let's talk about World War One. The United okay. States had remained neutral at the beginning of the war in 1914. However, when four American ships were sunk by German U-boats on March 27th, the U.S. declared war on April 6, 1917. Tell us how U.S. Army divisions were organized. Um, roughly, uh, you know, without going into all the numbers, but the, the biggest difference is that they were based on four regiments. And in World War II, so they were much bigger with with complete every position in a division, they could get up to around 28,000 men per di per division. Okay. In World War II, we went to a they call it they triangulized. They went to a three regiment um, organization and usually two regiments were were on the line and one was in reserve and they would rotate them in and out, you know, and mm -hmm. most of your most of your regiments um in world war II, or i'm sorry most of your divisions in world war ii um were around the 15 15 000, um number of people so the regiment or the uh, divisions were smaller in world war ii and uh but yeah we we made um and of course a lot of our a lot of our equipment and our supporting things improved in terms of artillery and tanks and things like that they were light years ahead in world war ii compared to world war one but yeah, there was a major, major reconfiguration of the uh, the shape and the size and the organization. The average American infantry division, as you mentioned in your book, contained 
two infantry brigades, each with two infantry regiments, three machine gun battalions, one field artillery brigade with three artillery regiments and a divisional trench mortar battery. Companies contained four platoons, six officers and 250 men. At full strength, as you were mentioning, a regiment held 112 officers and 30, over 3,700 men. A full division contained 17,666 riflemen, 260 machine guns, and 72 guns. And the first call for males between age 21 to 30 to register for the draft took place on June 5th, 1917. Now, as far as Native Americans go, we run into a scenario in which some were U.S. citizens and some were not. Would you explain that scenario to us? Yes, and, and that's another one of the... Um... Um, another one of the uh, of the big misunderstandings with that you will again you'll get both native and non-native people today saying um, no Native American was a U.S. citizen um, until 1924 with the Indian Citizenship Act. Well, I know different because I interviewed many who were born in the 1890s who voted, and I remember one uh, Kiowa man telling me uh, he was still angry at himself for voting for Woodrow Wilson. He said, what was I thinking? You know, and, and I'm sitting there thinking, Oh my gosh, you vote for Woodrow Wilson. Oh my God. You know, Wilson, wow. <laughs> but what it comes down to is that uh, two or three main things. One, if you went through allotment and allotment started in 1886 and it continued well into the 1900s and everything. So generally speaking, if you're, your tribe and your reservation went through the allotment process, you became a U.S. citizen upon allotment. And so most of the people in Oklahoma uh, were were citizens by World War I. Uh, there are some groups, uh, depending on the specifics in their treaty, they may or may not be uh, made citizenship based on the provisions of a specific treaty. Now, you got to remember there's 371 treaties, I believe. So and they're all very, very different, you know, from tribe to tribe. Sure. Um, and then there's cases where um, if a native person was married to a non-native person and particularly if they lived outside the native community, a lot of times they were recognized as a, as a citizen. But long story short, there is um, up to perhaps one third of native people in uh, 1917 when the u.s enters world war one that have not been allotted or have not gained citizenship and so the situation that creates is okay they they should they should not be drafted um for service in the military because they're not a u.s citizen but yet some were and and went went ahead and served and right. even if they volunteer which many many did they should not, from a legal perspective, have been allowed to volunteer because they were un not a United States citizen. But there again, many did. They they weren't worried about that. Now, there are a few relatively small cases um, where some people, some groups do protest the draft because they are not uh, citizenship or their citizenship is questionable at the time. Mm -hmm. And this was something that was very hazy because... <clears throat> your draft boards were usually done on local levels, like a county level. And so it's just it's just some school teachers and politicians and local people. And a lot of times they didn't really clearly understand, well, what is the treaty provisions that affect this tribe 
that's in our area, you know. Understandably so, because yeah, they kept changing the treaties. Yeah, and it's not their specialty either. So there is a lot of confusion, both for native, some native mm. people and not native people. Are they a citizen? Are they not a citizen? You know, et cetera. And so you have every possible scenario. And so after the war, there was an offer in 1919. Um, those natives who served, who were not citizens, had an opportunity. They could apply for U.S. citizenship as kind of like a thank you for your service. But it was a very bureaucratic procedure um, for people in rural areas, it meant traveling quite a distance. And most veterans just didn't, they didn't want to fool with it. They just went right. back and got on with their lives. So this, this, um, this whole issue was put to rest then in 1924 with the Indian Citizenship Act, which was a blanket act that said, you know, all natives are U.S. citizens and anybody that's native born henceforward in the U.S., and then today, you know, if you're born at a military base, uh, U.S. military base, yes, you're still going to be a U.S. citizen, you know. And I think that's where the confusion has come. People hear that Citizenship Act and it made everybody a citizen and they think that nobody was a citizen before then. Before you know, it, yeah. It's like I said, I, I knew uh, when I first started doing my work, I knew very elder natives in Oklahoma that, yeah, they voted in the elections before World War One, And uh hmm. And, uh, you know, no, no big deal to them, you know. So, again, it's one of those things. It's um, these are detailed kind of subjects. Uh, they're 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 difficult to understand. And it's easy to to get an assumption or a, a popular view that just gets accepted as fact, you know. And then it gets spread around on social yeah. media. There is a Choctaw. I'd have to look it up. There is a Choctaw that I don't know if he was a state representative, state senator or something, but before World War One, was serving in in the Congress in uh, in uh, in the area. So clearly he had You'd have to be. He wouldn't be there. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I don't remember the precise date, but um, there is there is a specific date where, yeah, the Choctaw then all do gain uh, citizenship formally. Now, again, how many people recognize that? Um, how many people receive the documentation or. Some people could read, some people couldn't read, you know, it's a yeah. it's going to be a very mixed bag of what people understand, you know. Despite their status, legal or, legal or not, many Native Americans waived their exemption for military service and right. enlisted voluntarily, which I think is amazing. What was the Native American population in 1917? I believe it was around 350,000, right around that uh, that ballpark. And um, so you have, uh, and again, the records are never completely clear. I don't sure. <laughs> think it's going to be because in some areas, they did not record ethnicity or race on the enlistment or draft papers. In okay. some areas, they did. So I have seen documents where this is clearly a Native person. You can tell by the name. Um, but there's no race recorded or they're just stamped as white, you know, kind of thing. Okay. Right. Uh, and then there's other cases where people have nothing listed. So our, our, our numbers are not, the record keeping was not nearly as good in world war one as it was later. Um, yeah. And it varied some from state to state and everything. Um, but the best records I've seen is that, you know, there's, there's clearly around 12,000. They're pretty sure served in world war one, Native American soldiers. 
there's at least 17,000 registered for the draft by a, a certain date. Uh, but the possibility that, that there's even more that served, yes. And then, uh, you know, you realize too, um, there are situations by here. Yes, some of the Western communities, there's still more people around the home community. But back East, there's many more people who have moved into cities, um, mixed blood by this time, may or may not have identified as a native or bothered to market. Right. Just enlisted, enlisted, wanted to do their service. And and uh, so, again, the, the records are very skewed, you know, compared to the overall population, whether you're looking at whites, blacks, Hispanics, Asian Americans or whatever, uh, Native Americans are serving in a higher uh, proportion based on their size, not total numbers, but right. of their population than any other ethnic group in the United States. And that's pretty well maintained through the 20th century. That's that's impressive. I mean, you say in your book it was it was a rate nearly twice that of the rest of the American population, like on on a per capita basis, as you were mentioning. But that's considering that's a minority. Native Americans are a minority. Yeah. Um, that's pretty impressive. And and there was debate on whether or not to integrate American Indians into the military or to separate them into all Native units. Tell us about that. Um, there's some really good stories for this. There, there are cases where um, Bureau of Indian Affairs, like um, agency directors, made suggestions to the military. Hey, we have this, you know, population here. All these men, some of them are wanting to serve. Why not form an all, you know, whoever unit this tribe? Uh, you also have cases of natives themselves there's a famous one in in oklahoma where some of the arapahoes cheyenne arapahoes uh, they go to the um the, the state uh, capital and and, and group them and formally like make a request that hey we want to form an all cavalry unit of natives and we're willing to go and serve you know um and things the reason and and there are also some of the older officers at this time most of your officers in world war one the older ones like colonel or above had some experience at the end of the of the indian wars or in the scouting uh, the indian scouting programs in the 1890s and so several of them had worked with all indian companies and they knew what they were capable of um, and so they made suggestions as well uh, to do that now they were turned down the army did not approve the suggestions and there were several of them um on the basis of several things one it was seen as well this is on one level kind of a segre segregation kind of uh. a policy that would keep them more unto themselves where the larger government policy at the time of course was pro-assimilation so they wanted to mix natives amongst uh the general population uh, the same way with allotments, right? They wanted to create mm -hmm. all your neighbors were non-Indians around you so you would absorb mainstream culture. Well, the same idea in the military. Um, the other issue, though, was replacements. And many of these populations were just too small that if you had an all Lakota company of 250 men and you had to replace oh. 50 or 60 of them, you probably, you may not be able to come up with that many out of that same community or area. So um, exactly. to realize there are some tribes at this time that are only a, a few hundred people, and then there are others that are massive, you know, 
right uh, tens and tens of thousands you know um so that's a practical factor from the military you know uh, viewpoint amongst our native population some of them were for that segregation and some were not for it chief little wolf explained that the indian wants to fight for his country and will go where he is sent but they would like best to fight on horseback so he can get up and go fast after the enemy and then Chief Whitehorse reportedly stated, I want to fight for my country. And if if Uncle Sam will give me a good horse, I will make a good soldier and scalp the Kaiser. Right. So right. it's interesting. You have these two divided camps, even amongst the yeah. Native Americans. In your book, you mentioned that the very thing the government had set out to do, which was to assimilate the American Indians, the military actually still wanted them to retain their warrior characteristics, which they believed would help in battle. And secondly, despite the overarching decision to integrate, the military still ended up establishing a few units that contained a large amount of Native American soldiers, which ultimately led to the development of code talking. I thought that was so interesting. Why do you think such a great amount of Native Americans voluntarily enlisted? Well, the, the reasons for voluntary enlistment are really wide um, in, in some of the groups, particularly like Plains cultures. Okay, the role of the warrior uh, to this day, they talk about it. Uh, you know, I just come back from the Cairo Black Leggings ceremony and they're talking about it all weekend. The right. role of the warrior slash soldier or veteran, as we'd say today, is still paramount in that culture. So back in, you know, pre-reservation days, um, there was no one else to call. You know, these are your protectors from wild animals that come into the camp, an enemy group that raids you, whatever. And so mm -hmm. without the role of the protectors, all the other things we have, like, you know, religion and ceremonies and stuff, that may you may not be free to do that. Um, so, of course, educators and artists and things like that are very, very well respected. Um, but the role of the veteran or the soldier or the warrior, that is a, an old traditional role that's still very much valued. So the service. So this was really the only way to get that. If you think about it, after the reservation period, the only way to get role as a veteran now was to serve in the modern United States military. And there's kind of, a, there's already a long established role of this because um, there are natives going back to the earliest um, uh, colonial wars, um, all the way up to, you know, the Spanish American war, the civil war, et cetera. And this was just a continuation of this. So the role of the veteran was important. The role of, um, of that kind of culture in many groups, um, some people, uh, particularly in their exit statements, a lot of Native soldiers were interviewed um, by Joseph K. Dixon and filled out questionnaires and things as they processed out. Some of them joined simply for financial reasons. Um, the reservations did not have much in the way of job opportunity or infrastructure at the time. It was a way to escape poverty. And some of them, you know, did this in order to send the money back home uh, to their family to take care of them. Um, some people described um, the opportunity to travel and just adventure. And again, there are cultures, um, particularly Plains cultures, that made very long forays in traditional times to explore other lands and, and to raid and do things like this. Um, the boarding schools are another important factor. Uh, the boarding schools are run pretty much on a I would describe it as a military cadet 
kind of ROTC kind of fashion. Uh, you wore uniforms, you marched to your classes, you had barracks-like kind of bunks in dorms and things of that nature. Um, you ate in a mess hall together. You put the flag up every day, took it down. A lot of those basic things. And then some of them, like Haskell, um, actually had ROTC units within the schools where you actually learned um, close order drill and, you know, with rifles and things of that nature. So not all military skills, but a lot of the basic kind of regimented things like how to make your bunks, how right. to keep your, you know, put a uniform on nice, um, polish your boots, all that kind of stuff. This they've been doing it since they were kids. And so, so it, it preconditioned in a lot of ways. Um, you look at the interviews with with most natives at the period and then even modern interviews today, most of them, when they talk about boot camp, they said the only thing that was really a struggle to me was getting yelled at all the time. The physical part was nothing. Um, hmm. And I think I think um, another factor to this is. Um, and this is something, you know, we'll we'll talk about the Indian, uh, the Indian scout stereotype here in a second. But um, I think another factor is, are you from a rural upbringing or a more urban upbringing? And so there, for example, in even in World War One and Two, there are also some non-natives who are selected for snipers and scouts and things because they ran trap lines. They were woodsmen. They were professional mm -hmm. hunters uh, before the war. Uh, whereas somebody who grew up in, you know, perhaps uh, Philadelphia or somewhere just isn't going to have those skills. Right. <laughs> so in that case, I don't think it's it's not I don't think it's a biological thing at all. Anything like that. I think it's are you comfortable and are you uh, educated in outdoor activities? And for a lot of natives who were, you know, hunting, nothing to walk several miles to someone else's house to visit. Um, they, these are just part of the growing up in the country you know it was not a big uh, challenge you know exactly and something that was eye-opening to me was when you said in the book that the native boarding schools actually served as recruiting centers haskell a lot of us know of haskell as a native boarding school 415 students from haskell served in world war one uh, you mentioned in your book how Native Americans had served in every major English, French, Spanish, and American conflict in the New World, including King Philip's War, the French and Indian War, Revolutionary War, War of 1812, the Civil War, and even further as Indian scouts in multiple endeavors. So this was eye-opening. It's not like World War I was their first go at fighting with Americans in wars in the U.S. So yet. Yeah, I tend to just focus on the efforts as code talkers in World War One and Two, but they had been there through many battles with the U.S. Um, so with that, the U.S. enters World War One, and on April 6, 1917, some of the first American troops to reach France were Native American. Your book points out the viewpoints of the press. What did that look like? Oh, yeah, the viewpoints of the press uh, upon you know, realizing that there's some natives serving in, in 1917 are, um, I don't know if the word kind of kitschy, you know, a little bit. Uh, right. the, the titles of newspaper articles and, and even up into World War II, some of them are very saccharine. You know, they're mm -hmm. very, kinda, um, I don't know how to describe it another way, but um, they're there to draw your attention in. That's the, the, the hook, I think I would call it. There's yeah. a 
to the title of the article. And so it does play on a lot of stereotypes and things. So there's references to, you know, scalping and, and stalking and, and all these kind of, uh, you know, things like that, which to be quite honest, um, you know, any, any scout, regardless of who they are out there, yes, you're going to be stalking your enemy. It's, you know, it's just the yeah. job. Uh, but they use that you know to flavor it up and to make it enticing to the reader and everything of that nature you know and of course um some of the quotes that people say uh you know we do have still have people at this time with broken english you know and so sometimes the way it comes out in english might um the context may change a little bit but i think they they jumped upon those kind of catchy phrases like the one is you know i'll scout the kaiser you know and at the same time it's very stereotypical but at the same time oh my gosh how more patriotic could you be you know Mm -hmm. it's like out the kaiser it's over you know right (laughs) so i I think they're they're looking at it both ways and um you know also by this time um Native America, I mean, of course, there's there's still racism and, and discrimination, things of that nature around reservation communities and things. Um, there's also a whole side of America that is kind of romantically stereotyped about Indians, you know, kind of thing. Right. And um, so I, you know, we're, we're past the Indian wars, at least in the field at this time, not the legal wars, of course. But um, and I think there's a lot of people that are curious about Natives, but they have ingrained some of these they're they're clearly stereotypes but um i have this discussion with classes sometimes sometimes they get it sometimes they don't i said there's different kinds of stereotypes stereotypes are all exaggerated statements you know there may be some but they're exaggerated at a certain point um but the idea then of what we call the the um uh, the indian scout syndrome which uh, tom holm who is a native uh, Native American Vietnam veteran, and he is the one that come up with the concept. But the idea that, okay, a native can see better at night than a non-Indian. He can walk quieter through the woods than a non-Indian. You know, um, he doesn't complain. Um, he'll, he'll take any task that's given to him. You know, it becomes a kind of a Superman stereotype. But it's not, it's not, the same as it's not like the really negative racist stereotypes where it's you're bad because you're this color mm-hmm. it's now oh look at you we want you with us because you know and you start to get soldiers describing it's lucky to have native soldiers with them or in their unit or anything so there is a again a stereotype but there is a a bit of an admiration here even if it's misguided you know right kind of right and but the downside of this is that there's some reality to it. There's some non-reality. Um, most of the officers describe that. Yeah, when they ask a native soldier to do something, they don't hesitate. They'll take the order and they'll carry it out. They don't give them any rebuttal or argue about it or whatever. Um, they describe them as yes, they didn't complain. Like like, and not all white soldiers complained either. You know, but they didn't. Right. Complain. Right like a lot of non-Indians did, you know, kind of thing. Um, and then again, I think some of these individuals, like I said, um, as as kids, we went out all the time at night without flashlights and just your eyes adjust. We used the stars yeah. <laughs> all around in the country. 
Now, if I would have grown up in, in the city, I doubt I'd be comfortable doing that, you know? Right. Um, right. And I think, you know, for some of these, uh, uh, kids, a lot of them told me about, and also the reports further back, but, you know, they hunted deer, rabbit, squirrel, turkey. They were already adept with a firearm. They knew how to track things. They were comfortable, you know, they were comfortable. Exactly. And I think that's, that's more of the of the reality. So there is some of these stereotypes that are partially uh, realistic, but it's, you know, carrying them too far. Now, the downside, I think, is by having this super scout, Superman kind of belief, it leads to Native soldiers being picked more often to be the point man, to be the scout, to be the reconnaissance guy to go out at night. And what this means is you're going to have contact, a chance for contact more than other people. And that's going to mean more casualties and more killed in action. So there is a there is a potential downside to that, you know. So they were actually put in more dangerous positions. And that meant that there there obviously were could be more casualties in certain. A lot cases, of times, right? yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's it's not only natives that did these roles, sure. but a lot a lot of time, if a unit had natives, yeah, they wanted, and there's testimony by other, uh, there's a group in France uh, that describe, and they were ordered to go out on a patrol, and they said, well, we don't want to go unless he's leading us, and it was uh, it was a native guy, and he said, okay, you know, I'll, I'll take you, you know, um, wow. but they, they just said they had better results, and they were much more, um, they could move oftentimes more silently, um, they were just more adept at these these types of skills. Now, again, I don't think it's a biological thing. I think it's a you grew up doing. Yeah, rural they you know. they grew up that way yeah. in yeah. more rural areas, and and I find that a, even, even today with you know, there's people you different kinds of knowledge depending on how you grew up and where you grew up. There was um, an article that quoted a Canadian captain encouraging the American military to recruit Native Americans says these Indians with us have performed services that never could have been performed by a white man. Again and again during the last two years, I have seen them seen them go out at night between the trenches without firing a shot, without making the slightest noise or creating the slightest disturbance, come back leading a half half dozen or so Germans from whom valuable information has been gained. So it is interesting what you're saying there that where at one point Native Americans were viewed as undesirable and uncivilized. And now the perception kind of shifted when it came to their talents in war and maybe a little on the exaggerated side at times. But nevertheless, right. there was definitely a, a shift. There's a gentleman that you talk about in your book, last name Stallings, and he said they probably had the finest legs in France, the cowboys and the Indians, the Mexicans and the Okies from the wide open spaces were not yeah. the kind to be fenced in. Yeah. They went 13 miles in a single day. They were committed to a night attack tough enough for veterans and were successful in the black confusion of a ravine. The Indians among them said that nighttime was the only time for fighting. No one, not even their company officers, even understood how their swift units held together more than any other gang infantry they had defied the maxims of war. When they reached the canal that paralleled the Iron River, Major General William R. Smith halted them so that he, not they, might draw a few breaths. Yeah. So. Yeah, there, there are accounts like that of just... Um... 
and again, you know, the same way the non-Indians that you're getting out of Western Oklahoma and that a lot of these are cowboys and, and, you know, uh, you know, riding horses. Sure, right. These are, these are <laughs> people, a lot of them. Um, now there is a, there is a story I'll mention. It's in the, the history of the 36th division while they were training. Um, they noticed that when they approached a certain location, natives would do things different than the non-natives. And they begin to pick up on this. They understood how to use cover better and concealment. And so mm -hmm. there is an account where they said they modified their training in that unit, um, taking the lead of some of what the natives were teaching them and everything. Wow. Um, because again, you know, if you think about, um, if you think about hunting game or something, you know, you've got to have patience. You've got to have mm -hmm. stealth. You got to have quietness and everything. And so there are applicable uh, parallels to this and everything. But I thought that was noteworthy that they picked up on some tactics and said that can help us. You know, that's amazing. So proud. Just makes you so proud. So shifting gears a bit, let's mm -hmm. talk about the importance and power of secure communications in military operations. How crucial is the security of transmission from one human to another during battle? Uh, the farther distance between those two people, the more valuable. Mm -hmm. If it's the next room, there's not a whole lot of concern, obviously, you know. Um, but here's the thing. Um, there were a few basic means of communication in World War One that the Americans and Germans had. Um, the problem the Americans were having was anything that they did on. There was radio. It has a limited distance at the time. Phone was very widely used, you know, and. Um, um, the problem you had was, OK, one with a phone anybody who could get between you and them and click into the line physically it's just a party line and mm -hmm. you just listen in you can hear every single word um and companies might be quite a bit of distance apart too so if you have an area with enough cover you can get up there and just clip in there were also listening devices so this is a type of a it, it the basic premise is it's like a big magnetic coil and um, they can be used all the way back to sometimes uh, three and a half, four kilometers behind the line. So you don't even have to be up where the shooting is. And you get a direct line of sight and you can electronically pull that signal and listen into it. Uh -huh. Right. So it works like a magnet kind of thing of pulling a but pulling a, um, a radio or a uh, phone signal. Uh, the other thing was you could pass a message to a runner. And he physically gets up and runs to the next unit. Well, the minute he jumps out of his line and does that, snipers are going to open up on him because they oh know what he's doing. He's carrying a message. And right. So, um, so oh, my God. I'd hate to be one of those say, guys. Um, one out of four runners were either being captured by Germans or they were being shot and the message didn't go through. So if you're captured, they get the message. If you're shot, the message doesn't go through. So these are the factors. Now, we we had some of the same technology, too, that we could do against the Germans. Um, the other thing, too, is that German scholars are, you know, just still today, but, you know, spectacular. And particularly in terms of languages, um, they knew all the world's major languages. They had great linguists and and good good people at cracking codes and, and that kind of thing. So this is where the idea came up as America realized in certain situations 
that they are listening to what we're saying, that's eventually what led to the idea of what can we do to resolve this issue and the idea about, well, what about these native guys here in our unit? They're sitting there talking to each other right. around the campfire constantly. Um, they've got a language that we don't know. And if we don't know it, they're not going to know it. And that's really that's really what led to this, you know. So smart. And it's it's nice when you can pivot and go, let's look for solutions because these poor runners, can you imagine being like, uh, Rachel Youngman, you're going to be a runner. No, thanks. I don't want to be a runner. <laughs> yeah. So we know that the Ho-Chunk and then the Eastern Band of Cherokee and then the Choctaw were in that order leading us into the realm of co-talking. So since I know very little about the Eastern Band of Cherokee in World War One, feel free to share. Okay. Um, so there were a lot of Eastern Band Cherokee in the 1st and 2nd North Carolina National Guard units before the war. And that's, that's also common... Um, throughout many, much of America, there's a lot of Native Americans in the National Guard because it's one of the few ways to make some money at the time. And, you know, it was a few few extra dollars a month, you know, for that activity. Right. So when the 30th get federalized, uh, when when you're in a unit and it's federalized, that's it, you're in and, and you're now active duty, you know. And mm -hmm. so um, they are over in, in uh, France, um, near St. Saint, Quentin, Saint close to that, or St. Quentin, um, they're having the same basic problem. They're kind of a stale, a lot of World War I had stalemated out and everything. Um, they are noticing that um, every time they're doing something, the Germans seem to be a step of, ahead and everything. And they realize that they're being listened to. And this happened in more than one instance where officers were talking and they realized that the Germans just made an adjustment based on what they were saying. So they, they knew they were compromised. Um, so they called together all the uh, battalion signal people, signal officers, and said, okay, here's the problem we have, possibilities, you know. And right. uh, Captain Stallings, um, I believe his name was John, uh, Captain Stallings, who again was in the National Guard before World War One, said, well, you know, there's a lot of Cherokee boys that are in this group uh, before the war started. And I'm sure they're here in the division somewhere. We just have to find them, you know, and right. uh, because they basically took um, a lot of North Carolina and some of South Carolina and then, you know, put them together to form the 30th. So um, he describes um, how and again, the wording is just a little bit vague, but it it seems like it's either October 7th or 8th is the start date. One of those two days uh, where they begin to use, spread these guys out in units and do the messages in Cherokee and the Germans are not reacting to them. They can't, you know, they can't break them. They can <laughs> hear them. So that's the good thing is about, you know, they're going to be listening. They're going to hear it. But at this point, you don't care because you know, they're not going to be able to identify or break the language. And there is an officer that's a German officer that's captured a few days later and um, has the request and everything about. And, and there is a certain amount of uh, um, what's the word I want here. There's a certain amount of gentlemanliness between officers at this time and everything, you know. And so they're treated, you know, they're treated very good when they're captured and things. And but they he he requests uh, to ask a question. They say, sure. 
And he said, you know, we have the finest linguists in the world. They know all the world's major languages. We've never heard anything like what was on this radio. What were you using? You know, and, of course, <laughs> uh, you know, they, they weren't going to tell him, you know, and everything of that nature, you know. And um, now um, Captain Stallings is reassigned a few days later. And again, this is getting pretty late, pretty late in the war. Um, but about the 12th of October, he is reassigned, but he describes um, how they were positioned. Now, he doesn't say exactly how many, and he also does not list any names. And of course, today we would love to know that. But what you have to realize is this is just like any other detail where an officer goes and gets a bunch of guys. And, you know, sometimes the cooks get put up on the front line to be riflemen and nobody oh. makes this. You know, nobody makes a list of that. It's just what's got to be done. And then when it's done, then maybe you'll go back to being the cook, you know. Right. Uh, it's just an adjustment to achieve a, a, a needed um, adjustment, you know. Right. Um, so we don't have any names of them. And like I say, I, I was able to identify at least uh, 15 or 16 distinctly Cherokee names that are in the unit. They do show up on the rolls and everything of that nature. Now, I cannot say any of them were actually code talkers, you know, so we, we can't make that assumption because we do not have any, uh, because there was close to, oh gosh, I don't remember. It must've been close to 60 or more Cherokees in this in, scattered through this unit. So we don't know which ones were used and which ones were not, you know, huh. and usually what you're needing is you're, you're needing one at each company so there might have only been eight or 10 used, you know, we, we don't know, you know, we don't know. Uh, but that's, uh, and so how we come to know about this, there's, there's nothing in the 30th records that I found, but um, Captain Eddie stayed in the service. He was taking advanced officers training in 1931 at Fort Benning. And the class that he was taken in, the class assignment was, Describe a problem, a challenge that came up in combat that you were in in World War One, and how you resolved that problem. And so he oh. sat down and wrote up the whole deal. If it wasn't for that class, we no. probably never got his account. And his account is the most important uh, piece of primary evidence on the Eastern Band. The Germans were incredibly skilled in intercepting communications and breaking the enemy's code to, to kind of back up before the code talking started taking place. Your book states that October by October 6th or 7th, the 105th discovered that their messages in English were being intercepted by the Germans who were taking immediate counteractions, including artillery, almost as soon as the messages had been sent. When a colonel at the division headquarters called another colonel who was a regimental commander to check on that unit, the latter responded that all was fine and that they are shelling us pretty heavy, but the shells are striking about 100 yards in rear of my reserves. As their conversation continued for a few minutes, the shelling suddenly shifted to the reserve line's location, as well as directly on the regimental commander's dugout, which he was conveying to the division's headquarters. That's crazy. And so as the regimental officer continued, by Jove, they are planting them right on my reserve line. There, one landed right on top of my dugout. 
So that's when, you know, the following day, Captain Stanley is summoned. And it's so just interesting that there was this huge problem and they were, it was almost in real time. That's how close the Germans were to getting that interception and making changes. I believe also there was a test after that. They suspected what was going on. They sent a false order. So it was known that to ignore this order, but to move so <laughs> companies, artillery, all this men to a certain designated hill at this point. And it was something like 12 noon. And then at like 1203, the Germans just plastered that hill. Well, there was nobody on the hill, but that confirmed their suspicion, you know. Oh, right. That's so fascinating. All these things that go on in war. Well, we're going to cover additional Code Talker tribes in subsequent episodes. And something that I do want to talk about in one of those later episodes is how you were highly instrumental in commemorating our Code Talkers and ensuring their stories and heroism would not be forgotten. So this has been a fascinating conversation, and I'm excited to learn more. Listeners, stay tuned for the second part in the series where we'll discuss the Choctaw Code Talkers, my tribe. So I'm looking forward to that. Yakoki, Dr. Meadows. Yakoki. Thanks for listening to Native Chalk Talk. Be sure to join our community on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And check us out at nativechalktalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki, thank you, my friends. <laughs>